laptop. Um, Alrighty, so we'll get started. All right, welcome everyone to uh, This Week in Markets, episode three. Uh, a lot more serious, a lot more serious kind of talk about the past week or so, what's going on, what to look forward to. Um, and uh, yeah, welcome. And we have our esteemed guest here. We have Wolf Financial, Wolfie, Special Sits, or Jay, Portfolio Hawk, Friend of the King, and then possibly uh, Connor might come in a little bit later to uh, talk about crypto. But I want to start with our first topic here. I want to throw it to you, Jay. Um, I know Wolf Financial, you have to leave as well. So I'm going to throw you a couple of questions. Yeah, I have till 820. Yeah. So, Jay, I want to ask you, uh, you know, this is something that you had been looking at and talking about recently. What happened to all the small caps here? We had Zach Morris that was on top, on fire. And then uh, you look at AHT, you look at a bunch of the other names that he was throwing out. I mean, they're down huge. Um, any comments on that? Yeah, it's, it's almost every single name. You know, actually, if you do an advanced Twitter search, you can see that, you know, months ago, like not just over the last few weeks, months ago, I was, you know, I'd mentioned that HT, you know, the founders are pretty shady people. Um, you know, I was pretty concerned about the conversions of preferred equity and the dilution there. I was concerned about leverage. It was a you know, class A, you know, it's not a high quality uh, hotel portfolio to begin with. Um, they have some, some decent properties, but the vacancies were, I mean, the, the utilizations are very, very low um, based on the geographic mix. And they're, they're much better hotel um, takers out there if you wanted exposure to hospitality. And um, this was an easy one. It's very similar to what, um, you know, Nathan McCod, you know, kind of the short phase small cap guy did with uh, Excella, right? Excella was essentially a defaulted company, a company that was going to default in the second half of this year. It was a BPO, business process outsourcing, um, with very slim margins, like a sub 10% EBITDA margin for all of last year. It had, it was levered over 12 times and the bonds were trading at 30. And this guy takes a $50 million market cap, pumps it to 200 million, right? 4x and then the company issues 200 million of stock um more than doubles the shares outstanding um is completely you know the bonds are still like sub 70 you know this company could actually default within the next two years and these guys like they don't do any real analysis um i wouldn't even call these small caps i would call these like zombie companies like these guys are pumping micro caps and zombie companies and it is like and to be very frank, you don't even need to be smart. It's just common sense. You know, it may these these companies shouldn't be rallying two, three, four, five hundred percent. Um, you know, Excel is not like a Hertz that actually has a path to profitability. It's actually losing customers. And the CEO has been sued for fraud. Um, so I, I think you know a lot of these guys, um, I even had a conversation with um, a day trading group last night that literally posted, I'm not even going to name them, that one of their traders made 500 into $2.8 million. And when I asked, okay, how did you do that? They said, well, um, you know, it's true. He sent me a screenshot. The screenshot was Photoshopped. It, it, the lines were blurry. You could tell uh, in the numbers. So I said, okay, I'm going to DM this guy. 
someone I know DM'd him and said that they were off by a factor of like 16x. And um, so instead of 60,000 percent returns, you know, it was a couple thousand percent return. And then when I asked him, like, what were the names of the companies he was buying, he didn't really give me a good answer. So moral of the story is there are a lot of guys on Twitter that are pumping, claiming obscene returns, and they're pumping names. And the reason why you can, they have followings is because if you're pumping a $50 million market cap, and you have you know, 10,000, 20,000, 100,000 followers, of course it'll move when you name the ticker. And these guys buy the ticker before, they call it out, um, the tickers move. Uh, the issue is when, you know, when, when people start selling, there's no fundamental floor. And that's what individuals don't understand. There's a reason why you know, earnings and cash flows and brands and moats and understanding competitive landscapes and people do months and months of work before building a position in stock. It's because it gives you an idea of what the hard assets are worth. When you're buying a stock, you're buying a piece of a business. You're not, you know, you're not buying a token. Um, so I foresaw and, you know, listen, the reason why this self happened could be completely different than what I originally thought. So take this with a grain of salt. But I always had like a three-pronged thesis. One, going into Jackson Hole, you would have increased volatility because it's, you know, I think Powell is not going to have any any choice but to at least talk about tapering. Um, if you saw the congressional comments the last two days, every single congressman, again, well, 100% of the Republicans and even some of the Democrats we're very concerned about the level of, of monetary easing. Um, this is the first time uh, I've seen it. Um, secondly, retail market, I think I've been on at least 40 spaces where I've talked about this. Retail participation in the market went from 17% to 32% over the last 15 months. And that is bound to decrease on the margin. That doesn't mean it's going to go back to 17%. But if it goes from 32% to 27%, that's huge because retail is, for example, with AMC, retail is 90% of the volume. And with, with these micro caps, it's 100, retail is almost 100% of the volume. So if you think about that, how sensitive these names are to retail trading and fund flows, you know, when these guys start going to work or going on vacation, I went on my first vacation to San Juan a couple of weeks ago, and I'm going to go on at least three more this year, right? That's less screen time. That's less trading, less volume less time to pump, less time, you know, you can't make, you can't day trade, you know, in size on your, on your phone. If you're a day trader, you know, you need to be in front of, you need access to data. You need to sit on, you know, sit in front of your screens. Um, and a lot of these guys pumping these microcap names are day traders. So that was the second part of the thesis, just less retail volume and participation. And the third part of the thesis was that, you know, institutions like credit funds, you know, that are only making 3.7% on their high yield and now have lost money on the rate hedges, they're going to, you know, <clears throat> their carry through the end of the year is 1.7%. So they have their portfolios that they're going to make 1.7% on that still have a decent amount of credit risk. And so they're going to try to hedge that um, by buying cheap equity vol. Um, definite, especially going into the second half of the year, when comps are not as great and 
the you know Jackson Hole etc is on is on the horizon. So I think it's a confluence of those three things. You've seen breath really weak in the market. You know Wolf talked about that. Portfolio Hawk talked about that on our last call. You know it's for the last four weeks you've seen you know June was a great month, but even at the end of June you saw you know changes in breath. You saw smaller caps underperforming. Now you're suddenly seeing the biotech index down twelve percent. You're seeing SPACs, S-P-A-K, the SPAC ETF is a really easy way to track it. The SPAC ETF is underperforming. Every retail-heavy asset class is underperforming. Um, And there's no way to time it perfectly, but I do think um, it could get worse. I don't have a crystal ball, but I do think it could get worse for the next few weeks. Got it. Perfect. Now, over to you, Wolf Financial. Do you have any comments on the the small cap? Sorry, small cap area. Um, I know Jay just went into a, a long kind of explanation there. Wolf, any comments on that? I think Jay summed it up really well um, with some repercussions of the monetary policy and definitely feeling the pain. Wish I had maybe some bigger shorts like he does because uh, I don't have a ton to stop the bleeding right now. Um, yeah, it's it's definitely concerning with I, I think that there was a little bit of this, like we knew it would eventually happen, but wasn't really sure when it would happen, where there would be a continuous pullback. And I'm just very interested to see if it happens similar to like what happened in March where that run up and then the kind of really, really quick pullback that dropped a bunch. And then there was some more run up again. But uh, personally, just continuing to try to consolidate into the winners that are, you know, affected still, but not getting absolutely killed. I'm lucky that I didn't drop in anything too speculative. Um, so not getting absolutely tanked. But yeah, I think Jay covered it really well. Got it. Now I want to go over to Friend of the King here. I want to read you a little bit, a little bit of this. We got meme stocks down about 20, or I'm sorry, meme stocks are down. AMC is down about 20%. You have GME that's down almost $150 from its highs. You have Doge down about 60, per, 60 to 70% from its highs. Um, friend of the King, are memes done? Um, I don't want to necessarily answer that question, but I will say I think morale is low. <laughs> um, I, I, I think we're likely to see a bounce from some of the Russell uh, 2000 small cap uh, names. Uh, I was talking to, uh, Wol- oh, sorry, excuse me, Wolfie. Uh, since we have both of them up here about this earlier. Um, but I, I see some more room for that to, you know, bleed out a little bit more. And so the last time it was at around this low, I want to say it was March. Um, and we bounced back pretty, pretty well. Uh, it was, we bounced back 10%, I want to say, when we were this oversold last time. Um, so do I think meme stocks are dead? No. Do I think the momentum is dying off as the larger market is transitioning to, you know, safer big cap, you know, tech stocks? Yeah, that's I, I think that's kind of what we all expected to some extent. I just don't know. We all saw it in this uh, massive before. I also do think I also do think uh, just this is just my quick glance looking at after hours. Maybe we get a bounce tomorrow. Uh, some of these names are starting to rebound. I think space here. Uh, feels like an obvious buy, uh, not not for me personally, but just I can I can see some bids being sent there at like 
3170 right now. Uh, that just feels a little low. Uh, AMC probably still has room to drop, but you know, GameStop got a little pop uh, right after hours here. So, do I think these are dead? No. Momentum dying? Yes. Uh, we'll, we'll have to see how the rest of the summer goes because as of right now, with kind of what everything, uh, with everything with the Fed right now, we have to wait for Jackson Hole to see if this is going to be part of a larger sell-off and, you know, we're going to start tapering. The interesting thing, what you said, you know, about the bounce, we, we very well, well could see a small cap bounce. But the interesting thing is last time we had a sell-off, we had participation in the sell-off from the broad market indices. Um, as far as I can see, we're at all-time highs almost with QQQ and SPY. Yeah. I'd be curious if we were to see a 2 to 3% pullback, even a 5% pullback, which is nothing, in the S&P 500 or the QQQ, how all these names would react? Oh, God. Um, badly. Just horribly. I can't imagine there's a scenario. I know some people have talked about um, some inverse liquidity stuff. I had even kind of paid attention early in February to the, you know, uh, negative beta of some of the meme stocks and, you know, inverse correlation to the VIX. Uh, but at this rate, if the entire market is bleeding, what is saving the apes here? Because if, if, like, as you were saying, retail shrinking down, you know, from, or retail moving up from 17% to 32%, that moves down a couple percent, and that's uh, a, a sizable chunk from where we are now with the volume. Got it. Now, Wolf, I want to just stick to this for a second. I think probably the majority of us are, are don't want to make the claim that memes are dead, but Wolf, uh, Wolf financial, I want to know what sectors you're focusing on right now, just before you have to leave. Yeah, absolutely. Good question. Um, right now focusing on, I would say three main sectors. So I've still been heavily focused on the gaming sector personally. That's something which I've leaned into multiple times. And it was really interesting to see that, you know, Netflix is now getting into that. I think it's a brilliant idea. So continuing to look at, um, just stocks that are playing off of that. I don't believe it was just a fad. Um, you know, that I think that it was accelerated by quarantine, but it'll continue moving. Uh, second industry that I am looking at is the cannabis industry. So I posted a little bit about IIPR today. Um, I know a lot of the cannabis industry just got hammered. But again, um, you know, when you can find something that I feel is in like the super early stages of it, and there's a lot of potential, you know, for long-term holds within that industry, if you find the right names that are going to stick around, I think I've done about four different spaces covering the cannabis industry. Um, this has always been something that appealed to me. And then the third one that I would say is the social industry. So, you know, I was pushing Twitter for a while there for $50. I uh, sold my leaps uh, maybe like four days ago for 200% gain. And I just really saw value. And now, you know, Twitter is moving into make more money. My average cost on Snapchat is still $12.5 uh, share and just other areas in that. So, you know, building a social media myself. So I'm passionate about social medias and I see the value in them. So those would be three that I'm leaning into. Perfect. Perfect. Now, I think portfolio is still, uh, I guess he's still. Yeah, if, I could, if I could just tag on what Wolf said yeah. there, like I, I could not yeah. agree more. Uh, Chad and I have a, a good friend on here, risk versus reward, who when you said video games, I'm like, please say, please say weed stocks next, because I feel like the two are absolutely undervalued and under discussed. Uh, just as a as an overall sector. So no, I guess we come both of those. Chad, I gotta hop. Um, but whenever you guys finish, you should come over. I don't know if you saw it, but there's a link probably on my timeline. 
and others. I'm doing a workshop with the CEO of TrendSpider and founding member Jake and Jonah Lupton and one other that's going to start in 10 minutes, but feel free to come over later. You can register and get the Zoom link through and we're going to do live charting for a little bit over an hour just on a Zoom call. So I think we have like 200 people signed up. So that should be really fun. Definitely. Everyone uh, head over there, maybe after. Um, yeah. We'll fight okay. it. We'll see you soon, boss. Um, friend, you. I just want to ask you a quick question. Uh, you said a second ago, you think that weed stocks and gaming are really undervalued. Is there a certain reason why? Um, specifically, I think it's just a, a, a lack of traction. And, and I don't want to say that weed stocks aren't meme stocks because there are a couple in that bunch but there are far more um undervalued actual good uh you know potential you know weed companies out there um that are, aren't discussed or don't get the reddit um crowd as a you know it's not a darling of the reddit crowd right and so i, I i'd say more with video games uh, or, or gaming in general when you look at Netflix getting all this press from, you know, saying that they're heading into gaming, uh, I'm I'm chuckling a bit here because uh, it's one press announcement. It feels like everyone's like, oh, my God. Um, and I'm still looking at GameStop for, for that market going like they just put together a pretty solid uh, upper tech team, you know, and it's like, do, do I think EA and Unity and Activision, all of these names are good businesses that are likely to keep growing? Absolutely. If you, uh, I'm forgetting the exact numbers here. Forgive me. I want to say that, um, I'll just say the general statement, which is uh, the, the market for video games is larger than North American movies and sports combined. So like that statement alone for me is, wow, um, under discussed um, and, you know, a, an opportunity for a long-term uh, bullish play. Jay, did you want to say something? No. Um, versus. Uh, I'm sorry. Yeah, say that again. Sorry, I, I don't. I don't know if my speaker's yep. clear. Um, but friend of the king, what do, what do you think about the MSOs like Curaleaf versus you know versus some of the smaller names? I I don't really have an opinion, quite frankly. Um, not not necessarily like. It's not, it's not my personal area of expertise. Let me just say that. Um, so like for, what is it? You know, um, Tilray and some of the other names, uh, I, I just, I'm scared to touch them until it's fully legal here. But do I think that there's a chance for, what is it? Um, green thumb or some of those, you know, cure leaf or whatever it is uh, to, to pop. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I wish um, we'd be getting more American companies than Canadian companies here investing. And that just comes with you know, the federal legalization, right? Right. Actually, I heard a really interesting thesis from someone. And I'm not invested in these names, but on the MSOs, if there is federal legalization, then the benefit they have of all the state contracts essentially goes away and it opens them up to more competition. So it's actually really interesting that the companies that are leading now could actually see significant competition if weed is federally legalized. So you might see a pop in the beginning, but then 
with competition, they probably would lose market share right. and, so, and their margins so big, would probably, probably decline. Right now ends up getting diluted overall. Yep. Yeah, I, I can I can a hundred percent see that. I also um, think once it's legalized, I'd be shocked if you know some of the larger tobacco names weren't stepping up to acquire some of these companies. Um, yeah, I'd be you know I'm, you know like Altria and all these other yeah. companies. Right, Philip Morris um, should be in this industry, exactly. right? It, it makes no sense not to be uh, based on all the synergies there, right? All right. Yeah. So just based on lack of barriers to entry, I just I haven't really played in those names. Yeah, I'm I'm definitely more on uh, video games as a simple uh, uh, addressable market that I'm you know fully uh, aware of. Not that I'm not aware of weed, but you know it's just that that actual. The actual business behind it, I'm not uh, all too knowledgeable about. And some of the legalities. I know a lot of the dispensaries um, that exist in LA have just uh, essentially said, screw it, we're not going to get permits for anything, and then just op- operate under the radar. <laughs> you know, I- I'd like to see a little more um, structure there for, for the state's uh, sake and-, and all of ours. All right. Good point. All right. Before. Uh, Wolfie, I want to go to you for a last quick comment on this uh, on this topic. I know we talked about it a little bit yesterday, but before we do, everyone in the audience, give everyone on the on the speaker panel here a follow. They all put out outstanding content. Uh, Wolfie and, and Jay and and I guess portfolio not really, but he doesn't he doesn't like to tweet. But friend of the king, uh, all great content. Give them a follow. Check out what they do. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> Wolfie. I will, uh, I'll go over to you. Do you have any last comment on, on these meme names? I know you've been kind of in and out of them short, long. What, what are your thoughts on this? Um, I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll put my name on it. I think memes are dead. So I'll put my name on it. Um, the, if, if you, if you're familiar with, uh, Wyckoff, uh, Richard Wyckoff, he's one of like the first, like, pundits on wall street from the 1800s basically um there's like four phases in particular stocks and that's like accumulation and then you get markup then you get distribution and then you get markdown so the reason i bring that up is because if you just take a look at a lot of these stocks and a lot of these different meme names they're they're either in some sort of distribution pattern or they're in some sort of uh, markdown pattern and then if you just apply a little bit of logic to it, right, um, outside of anybody who's like, hey, short interest. So part of the problem with the, the retail aspect of things, one, when something works, they don't just like leave it alone and they don't just like leave well off, uh, well, well alone off. Uh, they try to like just replicate it. So this has a this has like a duality to it. So on the one hand, you can make a lot of money because if you're right, you can do it again and you'll make more money. On the other hand, you're going to spread it too thin. So part of the part of the interesting thing about Wall Street bets, for example, is when it first happened, it was concentrated. So you get like a handful of names and you get you get uh, things of that nature. Uh, there was a guy in a space. Um, if anybody's familiar with him, Tuttle. He put together a thing uh, uh, tracking performance from Wall Street bets and basically their sharp ratio. 
And essentially, he said that if their names, their top 50 names, generated a 61% return year to date, which sounds awesome. It is awesome, right? So if anybody, if I could tell you, hey, here's a, here's a method, you can get 61% a year, it's awesome. But the, the, the thing that caught my attention is if you just take a look at the top three returns, they were triple digit returns. So that, that tells me that the longer that these moves went on, the less effective they became. And outside of a couple of like outliers like clove and whatnot, Essentially, you're you're playing you're playing craps, right? So that's one. Two, uh, the canary in the coal mine for all of this is if you if you look at Jay mentioned, like if you look at the S and P, look at the Nasdaq, they've been they've been at all time highs and they've been kind of carrying weight. But if you if you drill down a little bit, you know what didn't perform the the arc names, right? So in general, arc never came back to its all time high. So essentially, this is kind of like the same the same concept, right? So people will continue to go back to the moat or the boat that they know. Um, a lot of these trades are tied to one another. They're either in the same type of basket or they're in the same type of uh, investor class, uh, which is predominantly retail. And then the third aspect of it is if you take a look at uh, the Russell performance, there are more Russell names today that are below their 50-day moving average than at any point in the last, uh, I think, I think since uh, COVID, like the, the peak of COVID. And all that's telling you is that like breadth is really, really waning. And that's problematic, especially because a lot of these names that these people are trading, these meme names, that's all they are. They're, they're part of the Russell. And then the last part that I'll drill on is like, what's the next carrier that gets them beyond where they hit, right? So the first thing that you're going to have to deal with is when people get back to be made whole, a lot of people that have suffered through this, maybe they, they're starting to go back into school, they're, they're starting to go, they need to pay for childcare, they need to start buying uh, new supplies, they need to start paying rent, whatever the case may be. Um, after being abused for like four months and seeing nothing but losses because your stock's been going up, going down, driving you crazy, when you get back to being made whole, not everyone's going to hold on. I know I know people like to feel like they're a part of a clique or a cult or something, but not everyone's going to hold on. So the first wave is going to be met with some sort of resistance. And it's not like, I'm not saying this is uh, uh, universal for everything, but just generally speaking. Um, and then you'll need another catalyst to push through. And I just don't see one uh, given a lot of the backdrops and a lot of uh, performance chasing and a lot of the distribution that's going on. So if I get if I make it technical, if you go through my charts, he's still there. Hello? Can everyone? Yeah, he's yeah, my, my he, he will. There we go. Sorry. Um, no, if you just go through my charts, I posted a chart of the IWM. Uh, it's in. Uh, it's it's been in an uptrend. Tapping up against this 150 day. If we lose that, there's like an air pocket of. I think another five percent down to its two hundred day. That's that's how technical I'll yep. get to it. Exactly. I mean, just an interesting thing Wolf said. Just two seconds is, you know, the more and more meme names there are, right? The the more difficult it is to pump these names. Just a, a very recent example is Newegg, right? Newegg, um, essentially a failed electronics distribution. 
e-commerce business that, you know, promised to put PCs together, which is a great idea, you know, rallied from nothing to a $25 billion market cap, you know, it was a Chinese reverse merger, very low float. Um, the day that rallied, uh, the 200% day, if you looked at AMC, volume was incredibly weak and the price was, was, was weakening pretty much the entire day. And that was a clear sign to me. Um, you know, the more and more you see new pumps and new ideas, the more you're going to see people move away from the two or three names that have done incredibly well. And that combined with, you know, less participation, people going back to school, going on vacation, you know, maybe they had implications on back order. Maybe they want to buy clothes to go out because they've gained 20 pounds again. You know, people are going to go back to their normal lives and, you know, not everyone's going to be sitting you know, 16 hours a day, you know, waking up 4 a.m. pre-market and day trading all day. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to wrap it up another way. Like, if you just take a look at, like, some of the crypto craze, it's the same thing. Like, someone found Doge and they made a shit ton of money and then they're pumping, you know, the next one and then they're pumping the next one. And then all of these moves start to have less and less of an impact. And the next thing you know, you've got like 14 different coins and none of them are really working. So you got to make decisions. Which one am I going to hold? It's the same concept, like no different right. whatsoever. Hey, Wolfie. I, George, George, one uh, second. I, I just wanted to ask Wolfie, do you remember um, you said the top three out of that Wall Street bets list? Do you remember the top three that had the highest returns or no? Yeah, it's GameStop, AMC and Clove. OK, OK. And also, uh. I just brought George up, uh, special, or Jay, uh, this is a guy I was going to connect you with, uh, Foreign Fidelity guy. George, DM uh, Special Sits. Hey, George. Yeah, DM uh, Special Sits after, and you guys can get on a call and discuss some monetization stuff. Um, George, did you have a comment, though? Yeah, just listening. It's a really good call. appreciate you putting this together, Chad. Um, we've got the ultimate sell signal here uh, to close the barn door and all the meme stocks coming right up. Um, not to sound like a smart ass, but we got the Robin Hood IPO coming. And it's classic timing. Um, yep, the peak of uh, Coinbase was the yeah, peak of I mean, crypto, you go right? Back, it always happens at the peak. You had, you know, um, Glencore coming public at the top of the commodities boom in the OOs. You had uh, Blackstone coming public at the top of the real estate market in 07, 08. Uh, you had Coinbase going public at the top of crypto. Um, so in case anyone get the memo that the meme game is long in the tooth, um, you got Robin Hood coming public right here. I've been pouring through the financials. It is absolutely atrocious. Uh, I don't know what the stock's going to do coming out the door. I mean, I hope it goes up. Usually you can't short these things for a week. I hope it goes up and I'm just going to short the hell out of it. I mean, um, you know, it's a directed listing. Um, there's no lockup. Um, and on top of it, they're, gonna, they're doing the employees a real favor by reserving, I think, anywhere between 20, they said between 20 and 35% of the shares to the employees. So, I hope this is a hot deal. I hope no, to the to the to the users as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right, sorry, right sorry. to I, the I, users. I misspoke. Yeah. I meant customers. You're correct. I meant customers. So I, I think this is a perfect setup. Um, the valuation is insane. I hope they get the deal off. I hope it goes up because I'm gonna I'm gonna you know call one eight hundred stock loan. Uh, I think this is gonna be a great investment. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, we'll move on to the next topic here. Um, uh, Portfolio Hawk, are you good now? Yeah, I'm here. Okay. Okay. So I wanted to ask you guys, just whatever you do, just don't follow me. <laughs> Portfolio is a great guy. We have tons of great spaces with him. So if you want to follow him, 
give him a follow. I think he's a, I think he's a pretty good guy. Every, everyone, everyone follow Portfolio Hawk. He's got some good yeah, he's, insights. He's a great guy. Um, so Jay, Jay, I want to come to you after this. Um, portfolio, maybe you'll know a little bit about this, but uh, Jay posted something about uh, Los Angeles doing some kind of a uh, lockdown potentially. I know we touched on this last week, um, but uh, I mean, is, is a Delta variant still in effect? Are we done with this? Does that even matter as potential lockdowns? What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I think, Chad, you and I and others have spoken about this, and we've been talking about this now for maybe two to three weeks. And the media is now uh, following the same narrative, and they're talking about what the impacts of the Delta variant are going to be. And I think that, um, you know, I like following things and following data that everyone else is ignoring. And that was the same when uh, this first emerged in November of 2019. And the U.S. and the markets and everyone ignored it up until March. And uh, that's when we saw a movement in the markets. And I think, you know, I'm not so much concerned about what happens as a result of the Delta variant in terms of lockdowns, because I don't think lockdowns are going to happen again. And uh, that I'm, I'm saying that in the face of, you know, L.A. openly saying that mask mandates, so forth, so on. But I'm a firm believer that we're not going to see lockdowns in the U.S. again. But what I do think it's going to end up doing is we're going to have further accommodative and fiscal policy go into place. That's going to further uh, trickle down capital, not only to capital asset holders, but also into the hands of consumers, which we've never seen in this country before prior to this pandemic. So for me. Uh, you know, I think that's the more important underlying factor that's at play versus just thinking about lockdown itself, which which I don't think is going to happen. Got it. And Jay, I'll let you comment on that. I know you posted it. Uh, sure. I mean, I think it, you know, like Wolfie also posted on my uh, profile, you know, I think it's a way to kind of shame the non-vaccinated people. It's an overly, you know, it's overly cautious if you track deaths, right, UK has had the Delta variant outside of India the longest. And if you, you know, it's I think it's now like 85% of the cases there are Delta variant. Um, and you track the, de- the hospitalizations, now it's been, what, almost four weeks. Um, the hospitalizations are still de minimis versus the number of cases. Um, so I think that's something important to consider. I think we might have some, some mass mandates. I don't think we'll have lockdowns. I think what it will create is some beautiful opportunities um, in the reopening travel space um, because a lot of those names had run a lot. Um, Some of them sold off quite a bit. Actually, like in Europe, a company called Europe Car, it is the largest auto rental company in Europe. They actually wiped off $2 billion of debt. Uh, Marathon was on the creditor committee. Uh, They essentially just equitized that debt. Um, so now the company has no corporate debt. It has ABS for the auto, but, um, you know, it trades at like, you know, four times to your forward EBITDA. And now it actually generates cash because, um, it cut, you know, in, in, in countries like France, where Europe car is based, they have unions and they aren't able to cut costs. The company was actually to cut costs for the first time in like 12 years. Um, and that's very important because they're a roll up and, you know, Rollups make money by you know buying companies cheap, cutting costs, and uh, growing. So I think Europe Car is pretty interesting. They also have this mobility business, which is unique. Where you know if you're, you can essentially just pick up any car on the street and park it in you know park it anywhere in, the, in within a certain radius in the city. So you take your app, you click, you can drive it. 
if you're an Uber driver, Lyft driver, you can drive their cars. If you're a corporate customer, you can actually uh, rent a car for about a month or two months. So they have longer term leases. Um, and they also have an option for millennials now. Instead of leasing a new car, you can actually just rent a car. So you give them a 200 euro down payment. You can rent a compact car um, for cheaper than, a, surprisingly, you know, cheaper than a lease um, with a lower down payment up front. So I do think, you know, the, these companies are becoming more innovative. They have less OPEX. Um, and because of the fleet, the defleeting, the smaller companies going bankrupt in Europe, um, Hertz going bankrupt and losing market share in Europe. Um, I do think that they've gained market share. So I don't know if you guys have heard of a service called Euromonitor. Um, I kind of pay for the Euromonitor industry reports in Europe. Um, their market share has gone up like 350 basis points. So they have no debt, uh, market share is up, OPEX is down, and their rental rates are going up. So I, I think the Delta variant actually created a very interesting buying opportunity. And guess what? Volkswagen bid 44 cents um, for this company. And uh, the company said no. So I do think like for, it's trading around 45 cents. I think 44 is kind of like a floor. And in a big sell-off, maybe you go like 10 cents below that, 10% below that to like 40. But I do think like the risk reward for a company like Europe Car. I think this Delta variant actually creates opportunities to buy companies like that. Got it. If, if I can, if I can pile on yep. uh, something bigger, it would be like booking, which trades at a really, really reasonable. Uh, value, I like that one too. Valuation relative to historical. And I pinned, I pinned a, a Ross Gerber's message at the top, not to pick on Ross, but that's exactly like we mentioned earlier at the beginning of the conversation like the mask mandate predominantly is going to just make people shame other people and make things uncomfortable so that more people get vaccinated. At least that's the goal there. There you see it in action less than an hour after it was announced. And Pfizer guys, Pfizer in, in August is approving their third booster, which, you know, they're by, the, the doctor who posted the information is biased, but supposed to make, make it, you know, nine times, like literally nine X more, effective but regardless it's probably going to be out in september the booster you know for all the variants got it so i guess uh if we get that third booster we'll really be good Jeez. um all right so let's see what else we got on here um okay so we talked about with wolfie and i think a, a couple others on here we talked yesterday about uh, and i want to go to jay with this one is this sideways summer or sell-off summer jay um, so, so again, like at the beginning of the call, no one has a crystal ball. I do think, you know, the same three factors apply one, um, big funds like credit funds hedging because the rate hedges aren't working. They're going to buy cheap equity hedges because you, you know, high yield yields 3.7%. They're for 1.8% carry through the, the end of the year. They're not just going to risk their fun, fund, right? There's still credit risk in these triple C's. Um, that have rallied to like 5% yield. So there's going to be hedging. There's going to be retail lethargy and, and retail people, you know, kind of less retail volume went from 17 to 32. You know, that going to 25 would be disastrous for, for SPACs, microcaps, meme stocks. Um, and then three, you have Jackson Hole. And Jackson Hole is, um, whether they actually taper or not at Jackson Hole, there's going to be a lot of talk of it. So just leading up to it, there's going to be more hedging, and I do think there's going to be more volatility. Hey Jay, so for for anyone that's in the audience that doesn't know what you're referring to by Jackson Hole, can you can you uh, explain that really quickly? Sure. 
Sure. So Jackson Hole was also always like a seminal event. Well, you know, the biggest Jackson Hole meeting was obviously after the 2008 financial crisis, right? When Ben Bernanke, um, you know, announced, you know, QE, um, or you know, and discussed the effects of, of QE. And it's it's a meeting where the you know members of the board of governors of the Federal Reserve meet with other economists, and there's a symposium, there's speeches, and the minutes of of the Jackson of Jackson Hole. Oftentimes, you know, in those minutes, you can read um, you know in very important commentary about you know what the Federal Reserve is thinking, what the various governors are thinking, and you know there th- sometimes you'll see big policy discussions. So. You know, it seems like, you know, the the Fed's goal and the goal is always changing based on the data, um, but is to get an unemployment under four percent. We're at five and a half, so we'll you'll probably be under four. I think after the unemployment insurance goes away, I actually posted on my Twitter profile in the top three reasons for people for the unemployment rate not falling. One is lack of childcare, and two is unemployment insurance. And as unemployment insurance expires. You're going to see some big payroll numbers starting in August, September. I expect by December of this year for unemployment to go under four. I know that's a bold statement, but it's not. Yeah. It's either going to be December or January. Yeah, or February. Yeah. I remember so, you saying January a little while ago. So hearing you say December, I'm like, oh, okay. All right. I hear you. you thanks. So, you know, it's, it's either going to be December, January, February. And if that happens, right, it's, it's inevitable that – you know, there's there are at least 14 senators um, over the last two days. The first time I've seen that were like, hey, there's too much monetary easing. My constituents in Cincinnati are saying that hog prices are doing this or all this garbage. Right. But uh, the senators are, you know, a lot of them are back. They're using backward looking data. But some of what they're talking about is actually really relevant. It's wage prices. Rents are starting to go up dramatically. I know that um, where my cousin lives in Chicago, rents are up like in even in the suburbs like Naperville, rents are up like 30% in Chicago where you have population decline. Um, so, you, you know, there, there's some issues. And I do think that once unemployment is under four, Powell's not going to have any choice. So there's going to be some volatility leading into that. Now, does that mean, um, no one has a crystal ball, but does that mean we're going to see a, a crash or things are going to be sideways? I think it'll be something in the middle. I think we're going to see volatility. Um, I think we're going to see riskier names uh, consolidate further. There are going to be bounces along the way. Um, what will be really interesting is if the lo- if the broader indices decline, how some of these small caps react. And I think this time around, it could be uh, they could react pretty badly. Got it. Got it. And portfolio. I'll 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 add I'll add one thing. I'll add to just look at the ten year and this and the seven year any any short term interest rate. Uh, that's that's your tell. Um, for a while, it was like uh, lower bonds is better for the market. And recently, lower bo- uh, lower yields, excuse me, lower yields is better for the market. And recently, uh, lower yields has been bad. And that's because the narrative has shifted. It went from the actual yield itself to yields being a tell on growth. So if yields are going down, more people want bonds. Why do why do more people want bonds when the bonds aren't yielding anything? Because they want to protect their money. Got it. There's, Go ahead, there's pop culture. Yeah, hi everyone. I, there's one thing I want to add, um, or two things I want to add on the unemployment picture. I think it's actually a little bit 
more nuanced. I think firms during the recession were able to increase their productivity meaningfully by basically producing the same output with fewer workers. So I actually think that structural unemployment has increased as a result of this productivity surge. And it's going to be... So that is an interesting point. Um, There's three points, because I've just had a long discussion with actually my old boss about this. Um, The three points. One, that's true, but there are 2 million people who retired early. Um, So, you know, the labor force is actually smaller, too. Um, And then two... While that is true, um, I think the labor, uh, the wages that are going up are more at the, the, you know, in the lower paying jobs. And those guys didn't get more efficient, right? Because those are all service jobs, hospitality, driver. I'm going to wait. I'm going to finish my thought. Um, And then the third is it's easy to say that. And, you know, that's what happened in 09. Um, But I'll tell you right now. You know, every single asset manager that I'm friends with needs to hire at least three people. They need to hire people in marketing. They need to hire. They need to hire analysts. Um, <clears throat> in every service company, investment bank is understaffed by ten percent. They are overpaying people. BlackRock just raised salaries by eight percent. And I'm talking about my industry because I know my industry. And every consulting firm that was overstaffed during COVID, like McKinsey, all these guys are benching their consultants. Um, you know, I got a call from a, a McKinsey partner um, about how to invest your PA. And I was like, hey, what's going on? You know, and she was like, listen, we're getting back to work. And some of the consultants have left. And like, we can't hire people in our pay bands. Like for first year consultant, we can't even hire people. So I think that I think like, I don't know, like, unless you have real data, to back that up, I know in certain, like in tech, that's true. In, in a lot of industries, that tr- that's true, but it doesn't apply to every industry. And the lack of immigration has made things a lot worse. Yeah, I mean, I think those are all fair points. I just don't think we'll really know until the COVID situation eases and people stop, you know, not working because they're getting unemployment or not working because they don't have childcare in a COVID backdrop. So I think there are just a lot of forces there. I mean, if you look at the productivity data, it will have jumped, you know, 400 basis points from across, you know, 2020 and 2021, sort of about 2% per year versus like the normal 1% per year. Uh, that means... Right, but how much of that is like forced productivity, no, so right? Some, like some of there's, there's, there's a, there's a in, productivity, I'll give you that. There's a New York, New York, there's a New Yorker article about a call center analyst, and he had six colleagues, and running a call center is whenever you have a problem, you call the tech guy, or you, know, you, have a, you book a ticket, and the ticket goes through a queue. And his boss never told him that they fired the five other people. So this guy, who just quit his job, by the way, had a queue of like 30, 40 jobs a day when he was used to doing 10. Um, and then the moral of the story was the company then had to hire three people to replace him because, you know, one person couldn't handle that type of flow versus a tenured worker. Yeah, no, there's definitely some forced productivity in there. That's, I mean, that, that entire extra 2% is not, you know, sustained productivity because some of it pertains to what you're describing. I just think there are a lot of interesting forces going on. The, other, the only other point I was going to make is, you know, there's 
some people that think like we're already in a bubble, um, that sort of that began in the high threes in the S and P. I'm not speaking for myself because I'm not a macro strategist, but you know, one that I follow. In, in which case, you know, if we're at that bubble stage right now, sort of things will go up until they start crashing down, even if the calendar is not sort of typically supportive. If we're not yet in a bubble or we're not in the last stage of a bubble, yeah, you could get sort of, you know, modest to moderate pullbacks and then a further leg up. Um, but there's definitely one argument, you know, that we've already been a bubble for the last 500 points on the S&P. I'm, I think, I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying it's I, I, one plausible theory. I think I'm, I'm in that camp where we see modest pullbacks and this market continues to move up. Uh, I also don't believe that we're going to see tapering anytime soon in terms of wage growth and productivity. You know, wages don't lead productivity. Productivity leads wages. And so what you're seeing, I think, is a lot of uh, productivity gains that corporations have seen either because it was forced or because they implemented technology or upgrades or whatever it may be. Um, so, I'm kind of in the opposite camp from a lot of the people on this panel, and I'm okay with it. Uh, that's what makes a market. But uh, I suppose time will tell. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I, I recognize all the viewpoints, and that's why I'm not behaving super defensively. But um, there are a lot of ways you can sort of construe uh, the state of affairs we're in. And only time will tell in reverse, you know, or looking backwards, which. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, one of the things being talked about. Correct. Oh, sorry, uh, Pop, go ahead. I was done, please. Yeah, I was going to say, I think, you know, look, um, Jay talked about data, right? And I mean this with the most respect possible, but using anecdotes of friends that are hiring or might have vacancies. It... BlackRock just raised their entire that, wage. They, they that, managed $10 trillion. So me, they raised finish. their wage across so their entire platform by 8%. And then you can rebut it. Um, so also keep in mind that what we've seen as a result of the pandemic, people have now been granted a lot more flexibility in their lifestyle. And maybe that's a cause for a shift from a certain sector and industry into others where wages might be lower. Where, where it has created a shortage in the short run for the asset management or the financial services sector. Someone may have opted to live in a different place and work remotely and receive a lower wage and are done with the lifestyle that financial services offers. So I don't, I don't think that. I of can course, but that's also, in a, that's also anecdotal or for you. Uh, but I guess time will tell. For sure. I, I want to say that like, most of most of the jobs that are impacted where you're not seeing stickiness or people returning are the people that need the jobs the most. And I think that comparing regular data or data of, you know, mid-level jobs or people who work in office buildings or whatnot is completely an antithetical to w the people that work in stadiums or in travel or in restaurants and all that stuff. Sure. I mean, that data is even more apparent, right? I mean, if you look at wages for, I mean, minimum wage jobs, you look at what Chipotle did with, you know, you look at Amazon raising wages, you look at just minimum wages across the country going up and, you know, forcing companies and, you know, the, the 
the push against you know for corporations to raise the lower wage jobs are going going even yeah but the, but the thing, percentage changes are even higher. the the job the job wage is going up but the employment rate is not so they could raise wages on the front end for people who are looking for work and then operate at a, at a leaner pace basically keeping more people outside of from from when they need to return to work and again, like, yeah, I understand, like, we'll see data, data will pan out. But like, there's, there's not that demand to go back to those lowest end jobs that, you know, I was I, I for one thought that they would come back because they're going to get more money. But even with that money, despite that money, they're not coming back. And they're not coming back at a, any rate close to Sure. Uh, what they have been in the past. So and you get so portfolio and wolf, but those guys are going to leave the workforce then, right? If that's what you're describing, they're not part of. They won't even be part of the no, unemployment no, 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 rate. No, I, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not saying. No, no, no. I'm saying that there that creates a a real risk where they get left out of the workforce. Not like that they're gonna they're gonna leave themselves because if if we're gonna talk on the front end and say, hey, there's gonna be a lot of unemployment benefits that get pulled off. There's gonna be a lot of. Um, housing benefits where people can't be evicted, for example, that moratoriums are going to get pulled off and all this stuff is going to get start, start getting peeled back layer by layer, like an onion. I don't think that the lowest part of the, the um, employment uh, pie is going to be sophisticated enough to understand that this is a real threat. Right. And so I think that there is a real potential that, some people just kind of get displaced because they were they were the last to act and businesses just adapted, whether it be through the aid of technology or whether it be through the aid of just running leaner and paying people more. Sure. But let's say that you're right. And wages, you know, for, you know, for the restaurant across the street are now $20 an hour to be a waitress. And you have someone that can't make their $900 rent check. What if they went to the restaurant and said they would do it for 15? I mean, that's just how competition works, right? Yeah, and then and then now that create now you're you're recreating a a a, a chasm or or, a, or a, a waterfall effect where now people who have been experiencing being paid nineteen dollars are now going to have to try to go back to fifteen or sixteen. I don't think like well those those people according to you burden. weren't even going back like they weren't even working in those jobs. So, I mean, we're talking about two different things. So those people. Who are not? Okay, who are? Who so, are un- so if you're paying me, if you're paying me, I understand what you're now, saying, but right? you're but you, what you're saying. No, no, but, but you're, you're saying two different things. The people who are not in the labor force, who are not working right now, are in a different group than the people who would, who just got raises. So you know, the people who haven't worked for 14 months, going back to the labor force, can they can take 16 dollars? It's probably more than they made. Did he drop? Or do I not hear? Yeah, no, no. Still here. Okay, go ahead. So there are two yeah. different groups of people that we're talking about, right? So the people that obviously that make $20 are not going to take a cut to 16 But the people who haven't worked for 15 months, who were making 13 right, in 2019, you know, f- for those guys – to come and you know get jobs you're saying like they're, if they're not going to be permanently left out of low-wage jobs right like <clears throat> i have a cleaner that comes in 
once a month and she's not even available to come in every week. You know, her, the clean, you know, I'm not going to stop hiring a cleaner. You know, I'm going to, the, these jobs are not as affected by technology. These service jobs that you're I, talking about. I, I would, I would implore you to go talk to different restaurants, different catering services, different low skilled corporations and just have the, and just, and just have this conversation because it's completely opposite to that statement that you just made. Okay. I just want to say, can we just to, to get some common ground here, can we all say that in longer term, 15, 20, 30 year time frames, we're going to be looking at a labor shortage. No, absolutely not. I think we're in a long-term deflationary. The, the long-term, I actually agree with portfolio. I think we're, the long-term, yeah, yeah. we're going to have to have basic universal basic income because there's going to be so much automation of jobs. And, and I think I would agree with that too. Kind of the point that, you know, Wolf and, and uh, Special were talking about, look, I, I, I'm in a very different camp than I think a lot of the people on here. I think, Inflation is, in fact, transitory. It might not be transitory in the sense that it lasts for two or three months, but I don't think inflation runs I mean, longer than the Dude, everything is transitory, but Yellen today just changed what she said Jake, to inflation. The way you asked me to let you finish yours? Of course. Thank you. Uh, I think a lot of what you're seeing in wage growth is simply a product of supply and demand, artificially manipulated by what – look – the average or the median income, rather, in the United States is somewhere close to $40,000. And now you're paying people in unemployment benefits without moving or lifting a finger slightly more than that. What incentive is there? Once that goes away in September, which I think it's going to get extended out even further, once that goes away, you're going to see a lot of people returning back to the workforce. And there, the, the measure of the workforce does change. And we saw this after 2008 when we added a category of discouraged workers, as we call them, those that have been looking for work and then never went back to the workforce because they got discouraged from looking and found alternative means, whether it may have been, you know, jobs that are not reported, not on the books, family members supporting them, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so I, I think uh, talking about rent increases, talking about uh, prices of commodities or food that have increased over the last three or four months. I think a lot of this is tied directly to just plumbing of, of the system as a result of what happened in COVID. You have eviction moratoriums that have been running now for almost two years, which has now got extended again to the end of this month and states pushing it out to the beginning of next year, which may even get pushed out further. No, even even more, wait, Portfolio, I'm just adding to that. Even more so, I believe Newsom said he wants to pay all the back rent in California. Yeah, well, I, I'm not educated on that, so I'm, I'm going to refrain from commenting on it. But um, I, I think the narrative, I, I don't buy the narrative. That, that's, that's the bottom line. I think inflation expectations are important. And I think that as people see these prices, I do think that, a lot of what you're seeing in agricultural commodities, commodities like copper, um, some of the, the prices are actually in a lot of industrial commodities, the prices will revert. But a lot of what we're seeing is, you know, medium term, right? It's, you know, you can say transitory. Is it transitory one month, three months, six months, 12 months? It actually matters a lot. And, 12 months. you know, in, in Yellen, 
Sure. But Yellen was, was of the camp that it was like three months. It was short-term transitory. And today she yeah. said that it's a medium-term transitory. You know, what does medium term mean? One year, two years? If it's, if it's more than six months, the Federal Reserve is going to have to act. I mean, let's give credit to Yellen, who still should be Fed chair. I mean, she's willing to change her mind. She's not sort of wrapped up in this game of yeah. chicken with the market, which isn't even really a game of chicken except in Powell's head. Um, so, I mean, at least Yellen's sort of trying to call the world as it is instead of how she wants it to be. And rent is the problem, right? That's the the real question mark is what's happening to rents. And obviously they went up pretty meaningfully month on month in the last CPI. I personally raised rents in all my buildings um, because, you know, I had a number of people living for free and, you know, to make up for those losses this year, um, I never evicted anyone. And I raised my rents across the board by $75 an apartment and no one complained. No one said anything at all. This is on, you know, dozens of apartments. This is not on a small portfolio. I'm also heavily involved in real estate myself from a professional aspect of investment management. And I I can echo what you're saying, but I can also tell you that consumers are aware of the supply dynamics that are in place today as a result of the eviction moratoriums. They have a choice of either paying $75 more a month to you or going and looking in a market where no supply exists, given a number of underlying structural factors, including shortage in just supply because of the pandemic. And or, So they can either pay you $75 a month without complaining, or they can go out and pay another 300 per month to find a replacement. That is correct. Well, I think portfolio, that up, is, I agree with you on that completely. Or come up, or come up with... Um, or and or come up with a lump sum fee for the for that inconvenience, even if they were to save right. a little bit of money. Right, they would have, they would have to bring a security deposit at a, at a three hundred dollar higher rent. You know, there are a number of considerations: moving fees, etc. Well. I think you broke up again, Jay. Oh no, I just I just went on mute because um, you know I, was, I thought someone else was going to say something. But I can I can jump I can jump in for a second. My my only point in trying to say the the longer term, and I don't know if I was like uh, misunderstood in that point where it's like I think the labor force will shrink due to UBI and advanced uh, technological increases, right, and just uh, further automation in every industry let alone the service industry right so like i i felt that wolf your your anecdotal you know go go to any restaurant i i feel like we can just look broader and say like the evidence is there in the rate of change that we're going to see 5 10 15 20 years from now and i i mean i millennials equal what 27% of the population or something like that so it's we have the we have essentially the largest population coming into you know the prime years of their life either looking to buy homes or you know uh, invest significant amounts of money for their retirement right um, at the same time there's a shortage of jobs right or there's a shortage of 
well-paying jobs um, for highly qualified people, um, or those are the only jobs available at a certain point when service industry jobs get, you know, automated. So that's where I see things heading in, in a, for, forget one to two year transitory term. I think longer term, we're just looking at a shift towards technology. So friend, I agree, but I actually do have a data point. I cover a company called United Road Services. It's one of the largest OEM trucking mm-hmm. companies. They take trucks from Ford, GM, and you know a number of other OEMs, and they transport them to dealers. And you need a special type of truck to do that. And that led me to go through some trade journals about the wages of truckers. Um, part of the reason is regulatory. Part of the reason is the average trucker's age, um, you know, being beyond 40 and early retirements, we're seeing the biggest shortage of truckers, um, ever. And, you know, these are high paying jobs. These are not the best jobs, but you can make $80,000 as a long haul trucker. And that I was going through the margins of United road services has a term loan. Um, it's not a publicly traded company. But I was going through the margin outlook, um, and this is historical data, and what they said was they expect cars, uh, OEMs to produce cars again, so the revenues are going to go up, but all the revenue growth is going to be um, eaten up by a decline in margin because of, of wage increases to truckers. Now, in September, uh, I don't expect, you know, that to change. I don't expect people to go into trucking. So I do think that, you know, in logistics is one huge industry where, and I can name five or six other industries where I think wages are going to be sticky and these high, you know, you're not, you're not going to see these wages come back down. Yeah. I'm, I'm just, I'm looking at a graph right now from Fundstrat. uh, the technology price ratio versus the S&P 500 index and U.S. labor shortage uh, surplus. Um, and I'm seeing whenever we get a shortage of labor, um, whether it's, you know, let's say 45 to 65 in that range, right, or 90, 99, uh, we get tech going parabolic. And that's what I see heading forward uh, and, and I, I guess that's kind of why I want to get your take, Jay, and portfolio, because I, I value your guys' opinion. So sorry, uh, I didn't understand that. Way. If you could just no, repeat that. My, my point was that um, whenever there's been a shortage of labor, let's say 45 to like 65 or 90 to, to 2000, okay, their tech is, tech is shot up. So I see a relationship there um, with a, a decrease in labor going forward or in the labor workforce with, you know, potential UBI uh, increased unemployment benefits because why there's so much liquidity in the system and we're going to see a little bit of inflation. So friend, let me, let me ask you something and Jay and even people in the audience that are listening, right? What changed fundamentally with the level of aggregate demand in this country and to those countries that we supply products to, in the last 18 months that's not tied to COVID? I think you answered your own question. I think you answered your own question. I mean, we saw net worth go up 2 trillion because of the stock market and 1 trillion due to real estate. We saw transfer payments from the government. 
um, not just the $1,200 checks, but there are people who got PPP loans who never spent the money, entrepreneurs that I know personally who have $2 million sitting in the bank, have, for some reason hasn't been audited. There's just so much money in the system. Um, and that money, the so, effects of that money are going to last for quite a while. It's going to last for at least a year. So, so my point is, is that when we talk about labor shortages, I don't buy the narrative because nothing has really changed on the so demand if there's, side of the if there's four, if there's $4 trillion, the demand has changed because people can afford. Look, if, if there's $4 trillion, I might eat a little bit more food but I'm not eating enough food to push up prices 50% because I was still eating prior to the pandemic. Dude, I have neighbors who've bought extra cars. They don't even have a parking spot in the building next door. They're, they're buying stuff because they have the ability to. They're overpaying for cars. They're overpaying three, four grand on sticker price to buy cars. A contractor friend of mine, you know, has made a fortune and he's living well beyond what I, you know, he's, he's going on, on a trip that I would have never foreseen him going on. And, you know, he bought, he bought a really nice car that he should have never been able to afford based on his prior year, year earnings. So I think that's completely incorrect. I mean, yeah, for food, I'm not going to gorge on 20 meals a day, but I mean, come on, we're still, we're a consumer economy. There's so many things you can buy. I don't know. I mean, I sort of agree with portfolio that aggregate demand hasn't changed that, much but i think it's changed enough right like people were not i mean some of the shifts that we're experiencing that you might call secular right like people working remotely and therefore moving to the suburbs and therefore wanting to live in a house versus an apartment in the city i mean that creates you know, more demand for housing. And then suddenly the fact that our housing stock has been underbuilt becomes, you know, a lot more apparent or the fact that, you know, we need semiconductors for many more things than we used to. And now there are insufficient semiconductors in the automotive supply chain. You know, that is again, somewhat, somewhat of a secular phenomenon that doesn't really depend on aggregate demand shifting that much. So, I mean, I sort of buy into this medium-term inflation, but I don't think the Fed can just ignore medium-term inflation either because obviously expectations are a big part of the inflation game. And just because it's two to three years doesn't mean inflation expectations won't get unanchored. But yes, yeah, so I, I, I think that there's just some more secular stuff going on that's creating supply-side inflation. For the most part, uh, look at what I just posted at the top of the space, guys. Um, would any of you pay a million dollars for that house? Hey, friend. To that, I will say we've been been through these real estate cycles in the past, <laughs> in the face of no inflation. So, just because an asset class is seeing irrational behavior from market participants, doesn't mean that it's a structural issue. Hey, all I all well, I said was, would you buy this house? This, no, this no, but friend, I agree. I wouldn't buy that house. But I, th I actually do think that in real estate there is structural, um, because funds have been buying single-family rentals yep. across the gamut. You know, even even firms that I never thought would get into the single-family rental space 
have started single family rental funds. Even Highland, which was a CLO firm, a $30 billion firm at its peak, um, you know, there's no yield. So they started a private single family REIT with thousands of properties. And I think there's a, there's a huge, I think the supply issue is actually a multi-year issue. So I think if you look, if you look from 2010 onwards, you've seen Blackstone, BlackRock, Colony, many others. They've been doing this for many, many years now. This is, this is not a new phenomenon. Maybe the velocity at which they're acquiring has increased because there's limited places to put capital where there's no correlation or little correlation to equities. Everyone wants to avoid fixed income. So maybe there's an increase in velocity. I don't know. I haven't looked at the data to definitively say that. But I would, I would uh, very confidently argue that single-family real estate institutional investors have likely acquired more than 80% of what they own outside of the last three years. Sure, but w- what matters is on the margin. It's, it's how much they're buying this year, next year, the year after that, and how that compares to the new housing stock that actually matters. I think if you look at new housing, if you look at housing starts and then you look at existing inventory that's coming on the market, I think the existing inventory is a lot more telling for a lot of those factors that I mentioned earlier that are uh, politically driven, pol- politically motivated, where supply cannot come to the market because of a lot of constraints that are there. You cannot evict people. You can evict people under three circumstances. If they've been delinquent on rent for more than six months, if they are causing serious damage to the property or others around them, and the third condition being, if you are willing to live in the property as your primary residence, which if you falsify, you're facing a penalty of $250,000, which will be enforced. Right, but I'm talking about you know new home purchases, right? I mean, I'm no longer what talking about rentals. Of, what per, what percent of annual home sales historically have been broken out? What's the number of existing inventory? I, I actually sold? don't have the number. It's something that we would have to look up. But you know, we're 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 kind of just talking around each other here. But yeah, I think I think it is evident. You can graph the percentage of institutional ownership of residential homes. The supply is not going up that much every year, by the way. And the percentage has been increasing at a very steady rate and the velocity has been increasing. Um, yeah, I, I would actually have to do, I, I can't speak any more on this point because I would actually have to look at the hard data and put something together in order to have a you know more detailed conversation. So I, I will welcome that opportunity to have that conversation next week at the same venue as tonight. And I will also conduct homework for a twitter related subject for the first time in my life wow I, no that would actually be really helpful because i <laughs> i'm invested in this in this industry so it'd be it'd be very interesting to go through it just just one more po- sorry one more point which is you know these secular shifts cause inflation because when demand is shifting from one consumer category to another what you end up getting is you get inflation in houses and automobiles, but you don't really get 
meaningful or commensurate deflation in, you know, the price at which you pay to go out to eat at a restaurant or the price you pay for airfare or hotels when you're traveling, right? So you're getting, it's not like a, a symmetric effect when you get these secular shifts in consumer demand. So the increase in prices in houses and autos is far outweigh, far outweighing the, the decrease in prices in some of these travel and entertainment categories. So the net effect from these secular shifts, even the absence of increased aggregate demand is inflation. So you, I guess, you know, you don't need the aggregate demand to increase to get inflation with these secular shifts. No, you can you can increase demand through the virtue of productivity gains and wealth gains uh, as as an effect of productivity gains. Right. So I'm not disagreeing with that. But I, I guess, again, time will tell Ra- rather than talking around each other, like Jay said. Let's wait and see. Yeah, 100 percent. All right. And you know, the last point is, you know, there's a gentleman, I think, from Kentucky Senator today in Palos Minutes. I was just listening to Bloomberg Radio. And, you know, he was pointing, and this is going to sound silly, but he was like, hey, milk prices are up 8%. You know, what are we going to do about that? You know, um, the number of cows isn't going to change, you know, over the next year or two. Um, So, you know, the distribution channel for milk hasn't changed very much. Maybe the logistics have become a little bit more expensive. But, you know, I think it would make sense next time to have a more, like, detailed discussion where we go through, like, different categories and some of the categories are very transitional uh, or sorry, very short term. And I, I was always of the view that this is a, you know, like a one, two year type phenomenon. Um, but my view is that if it is a, you know, a one year phenomenon, then the Fed's actually going to have to act because there's going to be so much pushback um, that even if the Fed is right, you know, probably three months after they do raise rates, <laughs> inflation is going to completely be a non-issue, but they, but they will have to do something leading up to that. Um, but I do think there are a number of categories. Um, and Powell said it himself, if you, if you took inflation from February, right, after, you know, if you took it from February to now, you won't see the 5.5% increase in CPI, but it's still close to 3%. It's still above the 2% mandate. All right, so we will – perfect. We'll come back to that next week. Uh, a couple of people will have some homework done uh, and some numbers as well. Last point I would just want to make, if anyone wants to come up and uh, ask a question or make a comment, do so now, and I'll bring you up in a second. Last uh, kind of point I would just want to make about uh, crypto markets in general, if someone wants to comment on this as well, Bitcoin has been kind of in, in the range of 30 to 34K the past week. Not really any news. Uh, overall, crypto markets – Altcoin markets have been kind of stale, uh, receding a little bit. I talked a little bit about Dogecoin earlier, down 70% from its highs. Um, and that's that's all I really want to comment about on, on crypto. If anyone else has any quick comments about that before we get to uh, possibly some, some speakers or some uh, so, questions. Chad, on, go ahead, Jay. Sorry, just on crypto. It's not a commentary on actually crypto itself. Um, but I have a number of people asking me about Coinbase, we're on Akram Razor's space uh, yesterday, um, you know, just because of price action. I think Benji, um, really nice guy, and a few other accounts were, to, were asking about, you know, Coinbase in general. So I will openly admit I'm not an expert at all when it comes to crypto. Um, but 
a model, a model is a model is a model and numbers are numbers. Um, so my analyst is putting together a pretty detailed model going through, you know, line by line, you know, the retail business, institutional business, take rates, et cetera, on Coinbase. There'll be no price target, um, but you will have enough data to create your own price target. Um, but this model will be published um, by the end of this week for subscribers, specialsitsresearch.com. Um, and, you know, it's, it's one that I've gotten so many uh, DMs about that I no, had no choice, even though I have no position in the name. Awesome. And Chad, I think you answered or you asked a question earlier, which I think is a very important question with an even more important answer. And you said, you know, this summer, is it going to be a, a side summer or is it going to be, uh, you know, a volatility summer? Uh, I'm 100 percent confident this is going to be a hot girl summer. So Perfect. that's my that's my Perfect. favorite can favorite I, type I, of summer. Sorry. Can I, can I counter with that? That I think it's a it's a fat daddy summer. Uh, uh nip that boy okay um i want i want to follow up on the bitcoin and crypto thing uh there's a lot of equity that's really really significantly tied to crypto specifically bitcoin um a lot of those charts really look like crap bitcoin chart kind of looks like crap um there's like a flywheel with these with these uh stocks and with with these cryptos where if if the big one breaks the others will follow if the others follow all these different stocks that are related, and we just think of MSTR, Riot, Mara, Tesla, even, and the broader the broader the um, the broader the failures, um, the more it can impact other stocks that are not related to crypto. So you have a lot of different ETFs, a lot of different uh, books that have a ton of like Square, PayPal, Tesla, etc., and if those prices start to fall because Bitcoin is falling. Um, yeah, Bitcoin's got support at 20,000, it's old high, but that's 30% below. Um, so it, there, these things kind of create a cascade or like a flywheel. So I just think that if, if you want to pay attention to anything, you'd pay attention to Bitcoin first. Perfect. Alrighty, I will. All right, so anyone that wants to come up to ask a question or make a comment, I probably do like one or two questions just because we're getting close to almost an hour and 30 yeah, minutes. I don't like, want to go too much I can, I can post like a, like an after party debrief. If, uh, yeah. So before you guys wrap up, I just want to say, uh, Jay, no hard feelings, man. You know that I get, Oh, not uh, at all. This, this is what makes, yeah. no, I mean, trust me, we're both in the in industry. I have these passionate discussions with, you know, with my friends from work, you know, and prior colleagues all the time, this is what makes an, in, an interesting discussion. The viewers uh, in this space actually went up 30% after, after a conversation. So no hard feelings at all. Uh, yeah, and, I, I, and, go ahead. And, uh, you know, and, and I'd love to, you know, I, I love to have people, it really sucks when everyone just agrees uh, on, on the same points in the space is that, you know, that, that doesn't make a market. Um, if one, if someone's going on the extreme end and, and, you know, on, on either side, that that is is often terrible for a space. But healthy discussions like this are, are, you know, maybe I'll learn something in the next space. Who knows? Yeah. So no, but th thanks to everyone. Uh, Sorry, Chad. But thanks to all of the speakers up here. I I'm very friendly with all of these guys. Um, unfortunately, next time we'll have some gals up here too, and I can say guys and gals. But um, I hope so. You you can call me a gal. That's fine. <laughs> I well, I personally identify <laughs> as a chicken. Uh, but that's that's my prerogative. So, 
Uh, but I digress. Thank you for uh, all the insights that all of you guys shared. And Chad, thanks for hosting this. Yeah, if I can just, if I can just say something real quick. Um, uh, very happy to be up here with everyone. Uh, Chad tweeted out earlier that we had wildly intelligent speakers. Um, I'm very happy to, to be up here as a less intelligent speaker than everyone else uh, <laughs> up here. But uh, seriously, guys, thank you for the conversation. This was a blast, as always. Absolutely. All right, let's go to go over to XQ really quick. What do you got, brother? Hey, so I think Special mentioned earlier, what, one thing that I kind of get hung up on with uh, discussions about AMC, and I'm not talking about within the AMC bubble, but you know, people outside of the um, cult that discuss it, as far as people saying, uh, okay, all or most of the volume is in retail, and then people go, oh no, you know, don't don't uh, you know fool yourself. This is all institutions. Like, shouldn't certain things like this be pretty much objective? As far and I understand, you know, not everybody's a Bloomberg terminal or whatever. You know, I certainly don't to look this stuff up or whatever to determine who's actually you know is this retail is this whatever you know that type of analysis. Why is it so like disputed? Is like different people talking about it as far as what's going on with it? Um, yeah, that's really that. interesting. Um, the CEO himself about a month ago said something like 83% of shareholders of AMC were retail. Um, completely different mix, by the way, than, than GME when it, when it started as a meme stock. And I think that number's probably gone up. And I don't have hard data because I haven't followed it that closely. Um, but but, where, uh, but that's, one that's one data point. Where would one look I, up that data? I think if you pull up the last 10Q of AMC, they actually state what percentage of their shareholders are retail. And it's, it's pretty high up there. It's above 80%. Okay, gotcha. Ape strong. Alrighty. <laughs> Alrighty, so I guess uh, no one else is requesting. So we will close this off. Uh, I forgot to mention, mention this in the beginning, but this episode of This Week in Markets has been sponsored by Retrosend, uh, at Retrosend or at Retrosend.com, quality finance apparel. So check that out. Um, and then lastly, I want to give everyone a, a quick comment. Um, but before I do, please, everyone in, in the audience right now, give them all a follow. They have all put out outstanding content. Give them a follow, check out what they got. Um, and so for final comment here, I'll start with Wolfie. Uh, I'll throw it over to you. Uh, I think I think it's... You know, everything's been stated. It's a little long in the tooth. Um, so I'll just reiterate a lot of different points. Uh, pay attention to 10-year uh, yields. Pay attention to how things behave in the next couple of weeks. Uh, earnings is like uh, the, the meatiest part of earnings season is in the next two weeks. So, you know, you could throw out everything that was said in here if there are just blowout numbers across the board and the market likes it. Um, I don't think that that's necessarily going to happen uh, across the board, but that that is a caveat to everything because data actually trumps everything. And then over to you, Jay. Yeah, I would echo that. Um, you know, I think if if you were to say what is one factor um, that can cause a quick snapback rally, um, it would be consistent, not just earnings beats, but outlooks. Uh, everyone's worried about outlooks because, you know, third quarter, fourth quarter, the comps are not easier for a number of these COVID plays. Um, so if outlooks are all really positive and exceed street estimates, you know, that would be very positive. Um, so that's something to, to focus on. You know, 
and, and keep in mind, a lot of these micro caps and SPACs, like the earnings don't matter as much, you know, focus on the companies that matter and they'll drag everything else up. Um, and, you know, second, you know, I'd like, to, I'd like to thank Chad for hosting this space. Check out at RetroSend. I'd like to thank everyone who spoke here. I learned a lot from everyone, uh, friend, Wolf, portfolio. Um, you know, Wolf actually speaks in a way about technical analysis that gets gets me really interested, even though I don't do a lot of technical analysis myself outside of volume, price, volatility. Um, and portfolio made a lot of really good observations and friends talked about a couple industries I wasn't as familiar with. So I learned about those. So definitely give everyone here a, a follow and looking forward to the next one. All right. And now over to you, portfolio. Sorry about that. So uh, I was actually too busy browsing uh, the RetroSend website and looking at what I'm going to order. And so even though Chad told you guys not to follow me, I I'm going to take the higher road and I'm going to say everyone give Chad a follow. He's an amazing guy. He, he does everything he can to connect people and help uh, them out in any way that he can and asks for nothing in return, right? Which is uh, remarkable in my opinion. It's, it's uh, very hard to find today. So give this guy a follow. Give everyone else a follow up here as well. And uh, I'm just going to say, look, uh, check out RetroSend. I'm probably going to be ordering that Bitcoin launch party T-shirt. I'm probably going to actually I'm definitively going to wear it to the next Bitcoin conference and uh, be very vocal and speak out against Bitcoin while wearing it. And I think it would make for a great conversation piece at parties and social gatherings uh, now that we're going to be going back uh, to somewhat of a normal. And for 26 bucks, I think I'm barbecues, I would I would wear it to a barbecue. I would wear it to Thanksgiving as it it's a multi-use. Uh, I have the, garment. I have this, I have the Stratford shirt just, just as it has the Stratton. Stratton. Sorry. I don't, I don't remember what the word is, but I have one Stratton of those. Oakmont, baby. Yeah. Yeah. I have one of those. You know, you know, I sent out a lot of stuff to influencers to get sales, but you guys by far are way better influencers. So you know what? Thank you guys. Uh, real, real, hold on, real uh, story. I'll... Chad wanted to send me something and I was like, nah, I'm gonna buy it. Oh, <laughs> a huge dude! Guy. Why isn't there a, a heart emoji in the spaces? I know, I know, huh? Um, all right, I'll go over to you, friend. Uh, I just want to say I'm actually gonna I'm actually gonna throw a hot take out here and say uh, meme stocks are not dead, people. I'm I'm disagreeing with Wolf here. Uh, we're gonna see a bounce. Uh, AMC to the moon, of course. Um, uh, I don't have any positions there, so I can say that with uh zero bias <laughs> so so friend when i say when i say dead i mean like all the highs are in just so we're clear it can bounce I'm, I'm, and, I'm, and i'm and i'm gonna counter that and say the highs are not so whether we, whether whether or not we we, we, we need to revisit this we, we're no, gonna no, have no, to no, revisit no. this now yeah next, next week next week for sure but um I, i'm gonna say uh, whether or not meme stocks are, are dead or they bounce, everyone here should have a plan in the chance that this is uh, a sell-off summer as well as a hot girl summer. Um, just just be careful, folks. Uh, kind of like what Wolf was saying, um, I, I, it's a little silly. I advertise a checklist. Go through, wake up, check, you know, the indices, futures, whatever it is, what time you're waking up, uh, volatility, the dollar, you know, the 10-year. Go, uh, really study the market. That's the best thing I can say. Perfect. And then, uh, pop culture. I know you brought. I brought you on last minute. Do you want to make any last minute remarks? Sure. I appreciate the opportunity to jump in and uh, participate. I guess 
these are the hardest markets I've ever experienced during my 15th year career in the business. So I'm just trying to understand things that might be overlooked and contribute those uh, to the discussion. And it's great to sort of be up here with some really good speakers who probably have firmer points of view than myself at the present point in time. So um, I'm just trying to sort of figure things out day by day. I'm very nervous about things. And uh, appreciate- Hey, don't, don't sell yourself short, man. I, I'm really not sure about any of my opinions at any point in time. <laughs> so, yeah, I appreciate everyone following um, all of us up here. I hope to uh, play more of a leadership role in one of these uh, spaces next week on a slightly uh, different topic. So stay tuned and um, have a great night, everyone. Yeah, one you thing, Pops, Pops, Pops got a book coming out, so everyone should go uh, on his website and put your name on the list so you can get updates about it. What kind of uh, what kind of book is it? What's the what's the topic? Uh, so the book is called "Decoding the Price Is Right: Winning Strategies On and Off the Set of America's Celebrated Game Show." The book. Uh, uses math and game theory to tackle all the different parts of the show and then looks at contestant behavior, performance, and biases. And then also draws some analogies from, I guess, learnings on the show to areas of business, finance, and everyday life. And uh, I'm working with an agent right now. Hopefully that will lead to a book deal and the book being on market through a commercial publisher, probably summer to fall 2022. That sounds really interesting. Did you see that Netflix documentary about the guy who memorized like 20,000 different, different prices? I hope I'm talking about the right show. And he went on and he won two and then he was kicked out. Yeah, no, I did. I watched that. That was interesting. I, so that was more of a memorization approach. Um, I'm not sort of focusing as much there, but it worked for a while. And then they sort of figured that he was doing it and they changed the items around. So they were not exactly identical with respect to their features, for example, a car, but it was really interesting. I tried to reach out to him, but I wasn't able to connect with him. I'm trying to reach out to a lot of people. To... Hey, special sets. What was the documentary called? Um, I saw it with my girlfriend at like 3 a.m. I will get back to you. I'll DM you. I'll try to find and DM okay. to you. No worries. Okay, so I want to I want to close this out now, so everyone can uh, get to dinner or whatever they're not. I just want to let you guys all know. Um, first of all, thank you all for coming and listening of the episode three. I'm excited for next week and uh, the future as well. And then I also want to let you know what we're doing. Uh, just some spaces coming up soon. So uh, every single week on Wednesdays, we do this week in FinTwit, which is a little bit more fun, relaxed space with Wolfie and Wolf Financial and a couple others. And then on Thursdays, we do a lot more serious uh, past week in markets uh, with Jay, Wolfie again, Portfolio Hawk. Um, you know, hopefully I can get Front of the King on a little bit more. I love this guy and uh, and others. Um, I'm sure we'll bring on a bunch of other guest speakers. And then tomorrow, I'm actually talking with uh, the founders of uh, Payload Space, which they talk about the business and policy of space. So I think that'll be extremely interesting. Um and then Sundays, uh, consistently, we're going to be doing a pitch your startup or idea space. That's with Wolf Financial and Wolfie as well and a number of others. Um, and then also, I'm, I believe next week, I'm going to be doing something with Pop Culture. I believe some kind of space on what he's doing on his book upcoming. 
um, and a number of different things. And then also, I believe ne- – I'm sorry to keep going on here. Next week, I believe, either Monday or Tuesday, we're probably going to do a Bitcoin maximalist versus non-Bitcoin maximalist, so no coiners. Uh, and that'll probably be Portfolio Hawk and uh, potentially George Noble, who was on a little bit earlier, former Fidelity guy. And then uh, he'll be versing Dennis, who I'm sure you've heard, and then uh, Mike as well. All smart if, guys. If George doesn't and make then, that mantle, I will be happy to aid Portfolio. Right. Little 2v2 action. And then um, also, um, I'm thinking about another space. Let me know in the DMs. A pitcher stock idea almost every single week. And maybe we'll get some of the guys up here um, to give you feedback on your stock. You know, maybe we'll go over fundamentals, TA, stuff like that that you bring. That sounds exciting. I would, uh, it's almost like a like a panel. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Yeah, I think that would be really cool. Um, and so I'm thinking about that. I think DM me if you think that would be cool as well. And uh, we'll go from there. We'll try and do maybe a consistent space every week. Um, so, Jay, did you want to say something just before I really close it out here? Um, last thing, you know, I posted something. Most important thing, you know, as an investor is to know what you own. Um, so if you own a stock and you own something and you're worried about it, you know, think about the business. You know, do you want to own this long term? Can you explain how the company actually makes money to a seven-year-old in less than one minute? Do you know the competitors? Do you know just the top line items, revenue, gross profit. Do you know how, what the valuation is versus peers? Do you know if it's sensitive to rates? Do you know if it's sensitive to its most, its three top value drivers? Um, it could be margins, could be, you know, something that drives the revenue, could be market share, could be, you know, a number of other factors. But if you don't understand what you're invested in, that's what makes it hard to sleep at night. Um, and secondly, you know, avoid leverage in times like these. Yep. And and if I can just say one last thing before we close this up, um, I special said one of my favorite phrases, which is the most important thing. Uh, I'm I'm going to plug this book for anyone. Howard Marks, the most important thing, uncommon sense for the thoughtful investor. Uh, one of my favorite books, uh, kind of just discussing the market. Can't can't stress that enough. It's a it's a really great read. And then uh, for any of you uh, spaces degenerates, I'll host the after party here. <laughs> hey, hey, Chad, that that yep. documentary is called Perfect Bid on Netflix. Thank you. Got that, it. That's You're it. You're welcome. All right. Thanks, Thanks, so everyone. last thing again. Thanks, guys. Uh, last thing again, uh, follow everyone on this panel. And then also one more thing. Uh, on the top of this nest, I have I just posted what we did on Tuesday night, which was a uh, Twitter space on what the hell is going on with Binance, one of the largest crypto exchanges in the world. Um, an awesome space with a number of different journalists and also financial markets exer- experts. Um, so check that out. That's on YouTube. And uh, all of the spaces as well, I'm eventually putting on YouTube. It's just the way stuff is recorded is just really messed up. Um, but I'm trying to put all of it on there so if people miss this, they can listen to it. But anyways, have a great night. Again, thank you everyone for coming and uh, I'll see you guys soon. Thanks, Chad.